it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Just wanted to remind you guys that every Sunday night after each episode of Big Little Lies, the Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes break down everything we just saw in our new after show called Big Little Live in partnership with Buick. And after you check that out, make sure to subscribe to the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny, a weekly NFL podcast with frequent contributions from her beloved dog and sidekick named Lenny. You can subscribe to the Mina Kimes show with Lenny on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to watch Big Little Live every Sunday night on Twitter. David, a funny but fake tweet has been going around during the NBA Finals that says, Raptors star Kawhi Leonard ate a bag of 12 apples with a knife and fork in front of his teammates while chanting, Apple time, apple time. This is a fake story. (laughs) Just want to assure you. What I want to know is, what other fanciful story would you believe about Kawhi Leonard? (laughs) Oh man, this is hard. Uh, I, I think that, I mean the premise of the Kawhi memes that are going around. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's sort of like the inverse of like the Chuck Norris meme, where like Chuck Norris can like ch- karate chop the globe in half. Like Kawhi, it's just this like aggressive boringness. Then that then that's what makes it Kawhi. That's what makes it this like that. It's like it's not it's not pedestrian things right nobody eats apples and chants it's apple time but it's just loud it's like it's like it's like powerfully dull right i mean it's just like it's 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 riffing on the archetype of the of the profiled pro athlete but but making but all the quotes are like almost non-items in their boringness right except just the way they're they're presented in this i the the point i guess the answer to your question is uh, i believe Few or none of them, because the fakest part of all of them is is access, and no, and like no, nobody has access to Kawhi Leonard eating, whether it's apples or other or other things. But it's a very, very good. It's a it's a meme. It's a series of things that I really appreciate. It's sort of like, you know, when people will like will will tweet out a video or something or a, or a funny picture that they probably made themselves, but the tweet is like, who made this? You know, it's right. a way to kind of right. it's a way to get it out in the world with plausible deniability, but still kind of take credit for it. That's what this was. It was these these vi- these pictures of text that made to look like athletic stories or whatever, like it was screen grabbed, and then someone would just then the tweet would just be, "Man, Kawhi really is weird, huh?" But so it's like I didn't do this, but clearly this person has just done. <laughs> uh, it, it's it, this is this is a probably probably signals a very dark future. For social media and I mean, and, and journalism is placing it, but I, I am, I am all in on this right now. But, but what fun it'll be in the meantime. We are the Red Delicious yeah. of Media Podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Ryan Curtis and David Shoemaker of the Ringer here. Lots of stuff to get to on today's show, including the Trump soundbite of the week. The X-Men take on their greatest enemy, anonymous sources, listener mail, the overworked Twitter joke of the week, and lots, lots more. But first, David, let's talk NBA Finals. Uh, You can find your Game 6 analysis over on the BS Podcast or the Ringer NBA Show. I want to talk to you about Finals Media and the big story from Game 5 earlier this week, and actually maybe the whole series, is Kevin Durant rupturing his Achilles. He'd He'd been out for a month with a calf injury. Uh, he tried to play in game five and then something terrible happened. Let's listen to a very emotional Golden State president of basketball operations, Bob Myers, talking to reporters after game five. 
I don't believe there's anybody to blame, but I understand this, this world. And um, if you have to, you can blame me. I, ru I run our basketball operations department. And <laughs> um, let me tell you something about Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant loves to play basketball, and the people that questioned whether he wanted to get back to this team were wrong. And I'm not here to... He's one of the... He's one of the most misunderstood people. He's a good teammate. He's a good person. It's not fair. That, David, was the NBA press conference version of a subtweet. Because what happened days before... On June 7 was that Tim Kawakami, editor and columnist over at The Athletic, wrote a couple of lines in a column, which I'll quote to you. Uh, Has Durant fought to get back into action the way Clay Thompson and Kavon Looney did for game four? It's unclear. It's um, impossible to know. Maybe he has dot, dot, dot. But just ask yourself this. If Thompson or Looney or Steph Curry or Draymond Green or Andre Iguodala had this injury 30 days ago, would the Warriors still be waiting for them? Uh, subsequently to that, Sopan Deb and Kevin Draper of the New York times pointed out that those lines were a little bit shitty <laughs> and that probably would have been the end of it. But then Durant got himself back on the floor for game five and ruptured his Achilles and suddenly some semi shitty lines suddenly with a change of events seemed extremely shitty. What is your read on that whole thing? Oh, wow. Um, circumstance I mean plays a part here. Does it not? If Kevin Durant doesn't get hurt, this conversation, this whole thing looks very, very different. Yeah, Zach Lowe made that point in his podcast today or yesterday. I don't, I don't know when it came out that we're that. I think that the conversation is a little bit skewed because we're viewing everything through the like working backwards from the result, right? I mean, if everything had happened exactly the same way, but Kevin Durant had not gotten hurt or just twisted his ankle or something like that, then I don't know that we would have been, you know, trying to track down the Zapruder film for every moment in this whole process. And the Kawakami thing. We did that with sports, by the way. Can't believe yeah, exactly. the sports story. We worked backwards in the result. That's crazy. Anyway, continue. The Kawakami story was, was you know, has been rightly uh, lambasted since the injury. And, and Kawakami himself didn't do, any favor, do himself any favors by, you know, loudly defending himself on social media, talking shit about the New York Times crew and their uh, dissension from it. And then, you know, he did publicly sort of... Uh, you know, show contrition after the injury and everything else. But, you know, that's the story itself was almost drowned out by by the volume of his tweeting about it. But all that said, if he hadn't written it, someone else would have written it. And if no one else had written it, we still would have been talking about it. Right. I mean, this was the conversation that for a lot of people was surrounding um, the Warriors postseason. And I uh, I mean, obviously, this is an incredible tragedy. What happened to Kevin Durant? And I think that as with like Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard's injury last season, I mean, there's so much just confusion and, and uncertainty that surrounds these things in this day and age for a variety of reasons. Um, it it just makes it really hard to do the to to really find out what happened. It, it makes it makes it almost impossible to. I mean, Sherlock Holmes couldn't figure out you know who's at fault, who, who's the who's the culprit in this case, and. Uh, that is sort of hard for the average reader or even the average journalist to wrap their mind around. You know, it's it's an unsettling thing to not really know the answer. Um, and I think that's kind of what we see everybody wrestling with right now. 
I like how you went with Sherlock Holmes as your master detective reference instead of like Woj or, or Shams, but uh, I'm with you. Um, Kawakami, to his credit, by the way, climbed down right. next day on Twitter and, and said he'd put the emphasis on the wrong thing and even turned away people who were defending him and said, no, 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 I screwed up on this one. Um, I think what he was writing about and what was interesting before uh, the injury was that there was this total information blackout for like a month. And what he was trying to get at in that column was that even Kevin Durant's teammates didn't seem to have any idea what was going on. And, you know, it was really funny, like, and I'm saying all this without, without any kind of moral, moral content at all, but Kevin Durant not sitting on the bench with his teammates, being in the tunnel during games, not talking to the media. It took something, it took a finals where everything, as you say, is the Pruder film. Everything is, you know, surrounded by this crush of reporters and just put it off limits, essentially. And I think that just blew everybody's mind. You know, we're not used to having something unavailable during a championship series, something or someone. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't exist. And it's like, it's like reporters, you know, what they normally do on a daily basis is to try to take things that are unknown and make them known. And essentially they were presented with this giant unknown and forced to deal with it. And I think, you know, people, our pal Jay Kang, uh, representing the NBA dark web had written about that sort of information blackout. It just, it was very, very strange. And again, just unusual in terms of a final series. So anyway, I think that's kind of what his, he was getting at. What was interesting about the Myers press conference to me was he immediately before anybody, that was his opening statement before anybody had asked any questions, he went to, I don't think there's anybody to blame. I understand people are going to blame somebody. No, no one had even asked yet. Hey, you know, who made the decision that Kevin Durant could play in this game? No reporter had asked that yet, but he went straight there as if he was anticipating that there was going to be this crush of people blaming the Warriors. Uh, speaking of which, Charles Barkley on ESPN's Get Up uh, thought the Warriors were indeed to blame. Let's listen to a little bit of that. You've been asking these guys all morning if there's somebody to blame. Yes, yes there is somebody to blame. The Golden State Warriors for putting KD out there. Listen, that was not right. You know, if you go back and look at the last two weeks, uh, the article comes out, uh, KD's worst nightmare with the Warriors are winning without him. Then you come out, you read the articles, the Warriors are really unhappy when KD won't risk his Achilles. Uh, they're frustrated with KD. Now this man has to be feeling some type of weight. So I blame the Warriors for KD getting hurt, and I don't care what they say about it. They shouldn't have put that man out there. You know how I know it? Because he blew out his Achilles. Wow. So, so Charles. <laughs> wow. Barkley, uh, per usual, sideswiping like five targets there. But I feel, and do you agree that how did Kevin Durant get on the floor felt like the right question to ask immediately after that happened? Yeah. Although. I mean, the answer might be benign. The answer might be Kevin Durant wanted to play. The Warriors said, hey, there's some risks here. And he said, you know what? I want to help my teammates. But that does feel like the right question to ask when something like sure. that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think, but I think that the assumption has to be that it's benign. I mean, we were talking about a team that, first of all, that it let. does? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean really? I mean, I, I, I get I mean, the. I'm, just, I'm not saying that the assumption should be malignant, but, you know, shouldn't the assumption just be like, well, let's just see what the answer is? I mean, it could be either. I, mean, I think it could go either way. 
I, I think it probably I think it, it's feasible that it could go either way. But I think that you know, I mean, the the evidence that we that we can assume that we have is that you know his teammate Clay Thompson was was trying to argue himself onto the floor already in this series, and the Warriors held him out. Um, certainly, they would have if if the idea was just to like do, pull a Friday Night Lights and like you know shoot. Kevin Durant up with a bunch of painkillers and put him out there, they would have done it before game five. Um, and and if the idea is that they that they just at the last minute said, we're, you know, we're 95%, let's pretend we're 100, and, and then we'll talk Kevin, we'll talk KD into it. I mean, I guess there could be something like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, what we saw was a guy who could play for 12 minutes, right? And then tragedy struck. But we, But I think that in 2019 of all times, we can assume that most or all of the volition lies within the hands of Kevin Durant. Now, should there have been someone throwing themselves in front of the in front of him to keep him from getting on the court? I mean, I guess that's a logical question. And I think that what we see most of the conversation now boiling down to, an article after article, whether or not it's the lead, it's certainly the meat, is the 12 minutes thing, right? I mean, that he was on the floor for 12 of the first 14 minutes. And, yep. and you know, there's a lot of stories about it that he's, you know, that Steve Kerr has come out, I think, just today or yesterday and said, you know, they were going to pull him after eight and KD said, I feel good. Let me go a couple more. And so he went 10, 10 minutes, 20 seconds or whatever the total was. And then he, you know, kind of surprisingly started the second quarter. I mean, yeah, was should there have been somebody on the bench counting his minutes? I assume that if the training staff had, had thought that was necessary, they would have they would have done more to mandate it. Because although the, the Kerr's insistence that they said nothing worse could happen to it, it seem rings a little bit hollow. But we're dealing with a lot of... I mean, we we just we we just don't know, you know. And the fact that we're down to this twelve to fourteen minute, twelve out of fourteen minute thing, feels like feels like you know honing in on a very minor point of this of this of a very elaborate process for the sake of of pinpointing blame. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think there is an there is a lot to investigate here that doesn't necessarily lead us to the conclusion the Warriors are evil or something like that. It's just interesting, right? I mean, you have a guy who's one of the best players in the NBA who's about to become a free agent, who's about to sign a gigantic contract and probably still will, and now he's hurt and he's going to be laid up for a really long time. How did this happen is just a logical news question. I just think that's, I mean, that is the most logical news question. It may be that, hey, it's just fate. You know, it just happened. We did We did everything we could he felt great and all of a sudden wham uh tragedy struck as you say uh and then so that's you know that could be the answer but i just do think it's worth uh investigating i was also by the way david uh interested in this jalen rose clip he was on first take uh talking about the way people uh in the media and elsewhere flipped on kd listen to this we got our pound of flesh as media as fans as people who watch this league faithfully, we wanted to see KD give himself to us. We thought it was weak that he went and joined the Golden State Warriors. I didn't like that he joined the Golden State Warriors because when you go to the park, you want the two best players to pick teams, right. not join teams. Right. But since he joined the Golden State Warriors, now it was a quest for him to prove that he could be something bigger than just a back-to-back reigning finals MVP. That's why all year we have said that KD was leaving. Why? Because he was on the thirst for something that Golden State couldn't give him. 
We created that narrative. He would never be the dude in Golden State. That's always going to be Steph Curry's team. So, therefore, he goes there, wins championships, but he got to leave to still validate himself. So, now, congratulations, world. You got your pound of flesh. <laughs> this is probably the most – This is now it feels like we're all responsible, right? It's not just the Warriors training staff, but all of right. us. I do, I do think this kind of injury, and you don't have to totally agree with that full critique, but I do think this injury is one of those things of – when you have fun, uh, you know, playing take master with basketball world and it is fun and there's nothing wrong with that. I think most of the time, uh, and then something like this happens, all of a sudden you feel really bad about playing take master. And it just, it just is one of those things that it reveals that sports writing. A lot of that sports writing stuff is just kind of our sports TV stuff is kind of a smarmy business, right? Yeah. That's what we do. And it's sad that it has to take somebody's Achilles tendon rupturing. Uh, to 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 reveal it but you know i just think this is one of those things where you're like oh wow sports writing that's um yeah some business you guys got there yeah and i think that uh, yeah i think that what what jalen was saying does i mean reflect like this is i mean the point you're making but it reflects more more poignantly on you know the talking head sports journalism world than it does on fandom you know or anything like that and certainly there are a lot of people who came or who who felt bad for KD that were not huge KD fans before just like there were a lot of people that were kind of arbitrarily rooting for Toronto and 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 didn't about face when you know some Toronto fans decided to heckle KD after his injury but i think that by and yeah, large i think that by and large our our perception our remote perception of those things of 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 you know the the overall opinion shifting is probably is is just as skewed as anything else i mean what we're all that matters is that we're looking for we're look the same people are probably yelling the same things. We're just looking for the diff the, you know the opposite people yelling, right? I mean, suddenly it's it's the it's the anti the anti Toronto people are had the loudest voice after Toronto fans do a bad thing, and yeah, I I just think I think this I agree with that, but I think this NBA Finals has been absolute kryptonite for storylines. I hate mm -hmm. the word storylines, by the way. I just hate it. Everybody's, here is the storyline. I'm like, well, if it's a story, just write it. We do, it's just so weird to be like, here are the meta storylines for this finals. Yes. I just, with that word went away, I'd be so happy. But if we take quote unquote storylines, uh, the Warriors don't need KD. That was done after game one. Uh, then it was the Warriors need KD. That was apparently done after game two when they came back and won a game in Toronto. Then they needed KD again. Uh, KD is healthy enough to play and should be out there. KD shouldn't have been out there to play. The Toronto fans are these special, different kind of people who go to Jurassic parks all over the country and cheer. And there's this purity of fandom. Oh, wait, they're kind of like Yankee and Red Sox. fans. <laughs> they're just like any other fans. They have moments of temporary insanity and you know, that's kind of ugly. And then we move on. I just, mm -hmm. I loved it because every flimsy storyline disappeared after like five. We could even keep going, right? The Warriors don't need Boogie Cousins. Yes, they do need Boogie Cousins. Every, every, everything went down in like five seconds, uh, which is part of what makes the series fun, by the way. That's made a good series. But um, it was not a, uh, it was not a great time for takes. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week <laughs> where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod. Uh, where they will be gratefully received. David, this one is from the world of communicable diseases. Uh, not a topic I thought we'd start with, but here we are. A headline this week from the Daily Beast reads, Jessica Biel comes out as anti-vax activist. Uh, Biel appeared at the California State Assembly with RFK Jr. 
another anti-vax activist, who called her courageous. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, apparently she and her husband Justin Timberlake will be bringing measles back. <laughs> Thanks to a bunch of people, Bruno Alves, Ben Gibson, Mike Rusak, and Derek Burke for that one. This overworked was sent to me by four people also. A lot of uh, unanimity this week. For context, let's first listen to this Donald Trump soundbite from the Rose Garden. He was asked if he had a deadline for making a trade deal with China. I have no deadline. My deadline is what's up here. We'll figure out the deadline. Okay. Nobody can quite figure it out. It was an overworked Twitter joke for a journalist to write. Can't wait to try this on my editors. (laughs) Thanks to our pal Chris Sullentrop, Henry Thornton, Matthew Zeitlin, and reporter Joe Atmanovaj. Hope I'm saying your name right, Joe. And finally, David, this one from reader Michael. On Tuesday, we got a new set of Quinnipiac polls of head-to-head presidential matchups. The results were that Trump is losing to everybody. Uh, Biden, 53, Trump, 40. Sanders, 51, Trump, 42. Buttigieg, 47, Trump, 42. This led to a lot of jokes about other polls. Uh, Follow me, if you will. The machine that blows puffs of air in your eye at the eye doctor, 42, Trump, 41. Uh, (laughs) That dry soda in your car cup holder where three pennies are stuck, 48, Trump, 41. Chernobyl, 73, Trump, 22. (laughs) And finally, severe rectal bleeding, 49, Trump, 38, Jill Stein, 8%. So if you compared Trump losing to a disaster that sponsored an HBO series and painful hemorrhaging, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And I think we should start with the actually enlightening quote of the week. Uh, Most quotes that appear in print or on uh, television are just kind of filler, right? This was actually enlightening. It is Trump, once again, talking in the Oval Office with ABC's George Stephanopoulos about what he'd do if a foreign government offered him information about a political opponent. Let's listen. Okay, let's put yourself in a position. You're a congressman. Somebody comes up and says, hey, I have information on your opponent. Do you call the FBI? I don't think it's coming from Russia. I'll tell you what, I've seen a lot of things over my life. I don't think in my whole life I've ever called the FBI. In my whole life. I don't, you don't call the FBI. You throw somebody out of your office. You do whatever. Al you Gore got a stolen briefing book. He called the FBI. Well, that's different. A stolen briefing book. This isn't a stolen. This is somebody that said we have information on your opponent. Oh, let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life doesn't the work. The FBI that way. director says that's what should happen. The FBI director is wrong. Your campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. You want that kind of interference in our elections? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. If I thought there was something wrong, I'd go maybe to the FBI. Call is coming from Norway, David. (laughs) Call is coming from inside the Scandinavia. (laughs) Um, I have so many reactions to that. One is I love Trump talking about how I just, if somebody did that, I just throw him out of my office because he, he's sort of thinking his Trump tower office, yes. right? Not thinking of the oval office. People don't usually walk into the oval office and say, Mr. President, I got something great for you. And get this man out of here. It's like vacuum salesmen are sort of <laughs> streaming into the oval office. Um, the other part I liked about that was that it was actually, I think, an authentic record of what Trump feels. 
he's saying, you know, if someone brings you something and it's golden, of course you look at it. I, yeah. course, why would I call the FBI? Is that, yeah. Was that your uh, reaction? Yeah, no, I think that we should give great credit to President Trump <laughs> uh, for um, actually saying, telling the truth. I mean, uh, this is the sort of thing that even if you believe what he seems to believe, you would, most most people would be bullshitting. You know, they'd find a way. He really seems to believe this and seems to think that if he says it in the most sort of like plain way, then everyone who's listening will, of course, agree. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I, but it's 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 just sort of mind boggling, and it's another one of those instances where you, you find yourself, or I I find myself. I'm not going to speak for all the ones out there, but I find myself going back to that question of whether or not he is deliberately clouding the media cycle with this sort of nonsense. I mean, there's been a lot of rumors that he's that he's deliberately uh, dragging. The, Democ- the, the the Democrats into a impeachment battle because he thinks that'll help him in the election. There's all this like Trump is working on the, you know, is playing 40 chess or whatever argument that's, that's that argument has gone from like from like the Donald on Reddit to, you know, the, the real news media. Um, but this is just crazy. I mean, just that he would just drop that in a, to George Stephanopoulos of all people. And this has been. You know, if but if you want to take the conspiratorial point of view, this has been a wild couple of days for Donald Trump, man. We're we are. I really thought we were going to do a segment on Donald Trump standing on the White House lawn with an with an envelope which he was clearly falsely insisting had a deal with Mexico inside of it that he would love <laughs> to open, but he couldn't. Um, yeah, it didn't even make the cut. It was like third place this week. No, no, this is it's just it's 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 crazy. It's crazy. But you know. Um, it's good for him. Good for him for being totally honest about a thing that is probably illegal. Were you amused like I was by the production of that uh, clip with Stephanopoulos where it was that weird shaky cam? Yeah. And it sort of looked like that old uh, news series 48 Hours or, or <laughs> Nightline when it tried to be cool. You know, yeah. it's like, ah, we got the shaky cam. We got somebody standing in Times Square. Mm-hmm. I assume because that was impromptu, but that was a that was just kind of weird. Um, There's another great moment in that interview, by the way, where George Stephanopoulos asked him about how all of the polls show him not doing very well, so show him losing, including his own internal polls, which we know from a series of articles that have been written by various outlets over the past week or so. Trump said that wasn't true, that he doesn't believe in pollsters, but someone who claimed to be a pollster just told him it wasn't true. And then apparently he went off the record and called his, I mean, called back to the home office to, 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 to fact check it. Just a very bizarre series of events for something to, to happen, like sitting next to George Stephanopoulos in an official interview. Yeah, phone a friend usually doesn't happen during the White House interview. The uh, Trump got so much criticism for the bit about foreign governments that he tweeted a hypothetical scenario uh, involving him and the Prince of Wales, only he spelled <laughs> Wales with an H, like the sea mammal. Uh, and mm-hmm. Jonathan Chait wrote uh, in New York Magazine, so the Manchurian candidate. Star Trek four crossover scenario. The president briefly conjured will have to remain hypothetical. I enjoy. I would that have gone. I would. I would have gone with Jason Momoa as Aquaman in that formulation. But oh yeah, fine. it's a little fresher, isn't it? Yeah, a little fresher. But I don't know. Star Trek four still still looms large. Uh, David, this is a dispatch from the disinformation superhighway. We're about to listen to a deep fake video of Mark Zuckerberg. This is not real. This this, this will not engender an Orson Welles War of the Worlds type reaction. But let's just hear a little bit of what surfaced on Instagram this week. Imagine this for a second. One man with total control of billions of people's stolen data, all their secrets, their lives, 
their futures. I owe it all to Spectre. Spectre showed me that whoever controls the data controls the future. Uh, British artists Bill Posters and Daniel Howe, uh, according to Forbes, used AI tools to create that and put that Insta- video on Instagram. They, of course, were doing exactly what a prankster did a couple of weeks back with the fake Nancy Pelosi video, which was not taken down, as we talked about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And an Instagram spokesman now says uh, about the new Zuck video, if third-party fact-checkers mark it as false, we will filter it from Instagram's recommendation surfaces like Explore and Hashtag Pages. I'm not sure I even understand what that means. Um, but <laughs> AKA, they're not taking it down immediately. What did you mm-hmm. make of this whole deal? I thought that was an incredibly, incredibly effective uh, use of uh, political theater, uh, political art. I'm not quite exactly sure what to yeah, what to call that. Um, yeah, I mean, for uh, the video was just tongue in cheek enough and just absolutely terrifying in its authenticity. Um, the use of Spectre, I thought, was just wonderful, just incredibly on the nose, um, and. And and I think that it's you know I think that much more so than I mean let's be honest Mark Zuckerberg is is more recognizable than Nancy Pelosi you know I mean she he's and he is much more central uh, at least indirectly to most people's lives um, and I think that 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 going after him was a great you know kind of shot at Facebook and Instagram but it was also a you know it was also a a way to make the point to the general public and I and you know much more certain to go viral than a slightly slowed down video of Nancy Pelosi and I and I, I, I you know I think the to me the point was made now whether or not I mean I take the argument in good faith that they that, that deleting videos like the Nancy Pelosi video is not necessarily the best course of action and it's and it's sort of untenable to police the internet in such a way but it remains to be seen if marking things as false and filtering them is any more realistic so let's see where we go yeah here we go is right because uh drew harwell over at the washington post reports that there really is no great technology at the moment to sniff out these things Mm -hmm. and he he writes for all the progress researchers say they remain vastly overwhelmed by the technology they fear could herald a damaging new wave of disinformation campaigns, much in the same way fake news stories and deceptive Facebook groups mm-hmm. were deployed to influence public opinion during the 2016 election. So 2020 sounds fun. Cable news today. I mean, just flipping across the the, the major news channels, it's like they've all. So the, so the so Congress is having a hearing on deep fakes today, which will inevitably be hilarious. As we speak, I think. I mean, as we're recording, I think that's going on. But all of the news channels have like turned into the worst parodies of like the of the the local evening news that just focuses on car crashes and stuff. They're just like this weird fear mongering <laughs> over deep fakes, which is a concept that like is not adequately explained, and none of the like a, you know people over the age of fifty listening to this will have any idea what it means, except to be alarmed when they hear the term deep fake. Right? I mean, that's the only thing that's being gleaned from this for a lot of people, and. Having a bunch of seventy-year-old Congress people discussing—I mean, debating the matter—I don't think is going to get us anywhere useful either. Although, who knows? Maybe it'll raise awareness. I like the idea of local newscasters reporting on deep fakes. A deep fake tonight on Interstate Five. <laughs> Our reporter David Shoemaker is at the scene. That'd be—that'd be great. We need—we need more of that. That would liven up the local news. David, I've got an anonymous source of the week for you, or make that sources great because they all appeared in a Hollywood Reporter feature by Boris Kitt on the new X-Men movie, Dark Phoenix. And Dark Phoenix was kind of a bomb. 
yeah. making $33 million uh, in domestic gross in its opening weekend. And the piece like appeared five minutes later and kind of revealed just everything about the movie as if it had all been, <laughs> it all been stored up and, yeah. and, and all came racing out. Uh, a couple of highlights for you. Kit reports that the movie was supposed to open in February. And then James Cameron came along, who's very important to Fox, and decided he wanted Battle Angel Alito to open in February, which meant Dark Phoenix had to become a summer movie where it got bulldozed by the competition. Um, you know how movie studios do those awareness scores about movies? Uh, an insider at Fox tells Kit, when definite awareness of Rocket Man is higher than an X-Men movie, you know you're in strange territory. <laughs> And yeah. Lauren Schuler Donner, who is a producer on the franchise since yeah. the first movie, tweeted and then deleted. This is Kit writing. Save your condolences. I had zero, nothing to do with Dark Phoenix. And this is where the Hollywood Reporter story really gets real. Quote, Fox insiders say this is true. Noting that Donner additionally did not have anything to do with successful, the successful Logan and Deadpool and Deadpool 2 either, on which she received producer credit thanks to generous contract terms. Um, <laughs> an amazing anonymous source moment right there. What did you, uh, what'd you make of this piece? I need more generous contract terms, uh, in my life. Um, the, <laughs> it was really amazing the the speed with which this came out and, and obviously Boris Kitt's a, a, a good reporter and, and, uh, it didn't take a crystal ball to see that dark Phoenix wasn't going to do particularly well. He's actually inc- right on the nose about the comparison to rocket man. I mean, I'm a, lifelong fan of the X-Men, and I was certainly more aware that Rocketman was coming out than Dark Phoenix. Um, for sure. But you do, but one does imagine that like at the press junket for Dark Phoenix, they're like all going down the rope line or doing whatever, and then there's like the conveyor belt does a U-turn on the other side of the, you know, like on the other side of like a, a makeshift wall, there's just people giving their exit interviews. You know, it's just like all of the producers and actors are just like, well, that was a clusterfuck. You know, and just like giving like giving anonymous interviews about how everything went wrong right after they did right after they've been hyping the movie for the you know for the previous twenty minutes. It's amazing that this many anonymous people came together to uh, to try to explain away this catastrophe. And yeah, I mean, and I and I mentioned this to you, I think, off mic, but the but the the Lauren Schuler Donner tweets were were great because. Everything in this article, I believe, was anonymous except for those tweets. Like the only way they, the only person that that they were able to get on the record was someone who just loudly tweeted. I mean, just just wash their hands of the whole thing to the world on Twitter. Everybody who was actually involved with the film was just like, "Don't mention me by name." But everybody blew this one. Well, and it's such a it's such a touch of Hollywood that within this piece where there's all these recriminations about the movie, you have a recrimination within a recrimination. Lauren Schuler Donner, it's true, did not have anything to do with this disastrous movie, but she also did not have anything to do with these successful movies that her name was on. So that's just, I mean, there's just something so, <laughs> something so wonderfully mean about that. Um, it's great. Uh, a great Hollywood uh, piece in The Hollywood Reporter. Please read that. This should be a new meme where Lauren Schuler Donner just washes her hands of every movie failure in the, in the, for the rest of her life. Whether or not her name's attached to it, just like I just want to let you guys know that uh, that Sharknado Two, I had nothing to do with that movie. So. Yeah, I've I've washed my hand. My name may be on it, but I had nothing to do with it. Uh, Department of We're All Good, David. This week I saw a NewYorker.com headline that read: "The Secret Rebellion of Amelia Bedelia, the Bartleby of Domestic Work," uh, and it reminded me of a 2017 NewYorker.com headline. <laughs> 
the authoritative repressive soul of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. I think I am real at least things? temporary. These are real things. I think I am at least temporarily all good with close readings of children's literature. I am. I think I am. I think I just. I'm going to hit pause on behalf of journalism right now. Now you and I are both parents. And as a parent, it turns out you have to read these books like 900 times. Yeah. So I understand, you know, the person sitting there, you're tired, you've had no sleep, your child will not go to bed, and you're like, how can I get content out of this experience? <laughs> but I don't need I don't need a piece on giraffes can't dance. I don't need a piece on Horton Hears Who. We're, we're, I'm just, I am all good with the close readings of children's literature. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, from the obits desk, David. We need to say a belated word for Leanne Schreiber died last week of lung cancer. According to the New York Times, Obit Schreiber was the first woman to run in a major American daily newspaper sports section when the Times appointed her to that position in 1978. She later became ESPN's uh, public editor slash ombudswoman. Schreiber uh, had a quote where she says, I was, depending on one's view, the bitch, the saint, the Amazon, the token, the recipient of awards and death threats, and ultimately the ingrate for insisting upon my pre- agreed release after two excruciating years of sports editor of the times. I want to draw your attention to a fascinating episode in 1980. This is from Ira Burko's book red, which is a biography of red Smith. So red Smith is a columnist at the times. He is already a pantheon level sports writer. Uh, and in 1980, he writes a column about boycotting the Moscow summer Olympics, which the U S did eventually do. Of course, um, Smith included some info in this column when he sent it into the times that was not verifiable, including a bit about Soviet children being told to keep away from Americans uh, because they would be offering them poisoning, poisonous chewing gum. True. Feels very Cold War 1950s kind of stuff. Um, what happens is Schreiber and the sports desk gets this column and it's deadline time and they can't reach Red Smith and tell him, hey, we got to cut this stuff out. And columnists were so exalted in that period that you couldn't just rewrite them. You couldn't just take out the sentence. You had to ask, essentially ask Red Smith's permission. So Leanne Schreiber is faced with this decision. Do I run a column that I know has bogus material in it and defer to Red or mm -hmm. do I just kill it? And she took the fairly unprecedented step, a rarely precedented step of killing the Red Smith column. Well, Meanwhile, the column, which the Times' computer system had already gone out on the Times news service to 350 publications around yeah. the world. Then they killed it. And uh, every all hell broke loose. Uh, Smith uh, was at, Burko notes this, when Smith was asked about what his future columns would deal with, because reporters start calling him and saying, how did the Times kill your column? He said dryly, I'll write about the infield fly rule. But anyway... Schreiber took a lot of flack, but it was an interesting anecdote because she's she was fearless. Uh, she believed in certain ideals were worth protecting, even if Red Smith had wrote the piece. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really telling about her uh, tenure over there at the Times. Rest in power, Leanne Schreiber. All right, David, our story of the week. We're going to do this every week, hopefully on Thursday. A big piece is getting everybody's attention. And say what we like about it. In this case, it's the ESPN.com story on the demise of the AAF by Seth Wickersham and Michael Rothstein. Uh, a story that is one of those sports stories you'd been sort of waiting to be written because Charlie Ebersol had been very, very quiet yeah. after the demise of the AF. What did you like about this piece? What did you make of the piece? 
Well, I mean, you're right. It was one. It's it's a piece that that was in some ways seems necessary and kind of seemed sui generis the moment it came out because it was the, a lot of this was speculated about. But you're right. I mean, Ebersol, Charlie Ebersol had been quiet, so most of the major players in the story have continued to be quiet despite being cited repeatedly in the piece. They did. They weren't sources for the piece because there is ongoing litigation surrounding the AAF. Um, but you know, it's. I mean, it was. It was just a really, really good TikTok that makes everybody involved look a little bit silly and foolish. And I think that's. Uh, you know, and and justifies that portrayal. Um, and you know, it's. It shows that a lot of the a lot of the read that people had on the AF at the time. At I, I mean, going to its very core, which is that they were. A lot of the a lot of the most haphazard seeming decisions were made because they were racing against the time. I mean, racing against time to beat the XFL to market. Uh, they were mm-hmm. making financial decisions based on assumptions of what of their of a, of a impending relationship with the NFL. Um, their sources of revenue were sketchy to say the least. Um, and you know, it, there it shows. I guess that there is a that there is that the charisma and drive of, you know, someone like Charlie Ebersol, specifically Charlie Ebersol in this, in this instance can take you a long way, but, um, can't always take you to $300 million of liquidity over three years, uh, to launch a professional sports league. Um, anyway, it's, but it, but it's just one of those stories where, you know, every couple of paragraphs, there's just something that kind of makes you slap your head or laugh out loud. And it, then I highly recommend it to anybody that, that, uh, that wants to take a look. The story is inside the short, unhappy life of the Alliance of American Football over at ESPN.com right now. David, on Thursdays, we get listener mail, which I always look forward to. Uh, Earlier this week, we ranked disastrous magazine covers. And Christian Clark asked, how could we forget the October 29th, 2012 Sports Illustrated cover? (laughs) Steve Nash and Dwight Howard in Lakers jerseys with the headline, now this is going to be fun, by Lee Jenkins, by the way. Uh, <laughs> this is truly more disastrous than Vanity Fair and Beto, I think. Uh, so, so re- we'll re-rank them. Uh, Nikki Barnes in the Times Magazine, then the, La- then the Lakers of Steve Nash and Dwight Howard, and then, and then Beto and Vanity Fair. Thanks to Christian for that one. To feed our ongoing fascination with the rehabilitation of Guy Fieri, Dion Geftholz sent the exchange that Fieri and Lil Nas X had on Twitter, in which the latter called the former a legend. <laughs> uh, do you have do you have any reaction? <laughs> we need to name the fi- we ain't got to name the Guy Fieri segment. It just needs to be a standalone, doesn't it? Yeah, it I mean, just, just <laughs> we might be every week. Um, this week, this weekend, Guy, uh, I, I have nothing to c- contribute to this except for <laughs> they're both legends. We're gonna work on that. It, need, it, need, it needs something about rehabilitation, though, right? Oh, right. It's sort of a new a new a new guy. Something. Like, anyway, send send nominees to at the Hugh Hopkins, uh, loyal correspondent, sends this. Something I've been noticing of beyond North America is countries co-opting the hashtag we the North mantra that the Toronto Raptors have marketed. And they've expanded it to hashtag we the Commonwealth. I think I spotted it first from an Aussie, but the UK seems to have bought into it. We the Commonwealth is uh, a thing. So be on, be on the lookout for... Uh, for ripoffs of We the North. I thought that was fascinating. Um, we were talking about your proposed slogan for the old Baltimore Ravens defense. And Steve Kriske asks, wouldn't this be a better slogan for the Ravens D? Quote, the Ravens never <laughs> score. Never score. Oh, God. Yes. Yes, that would be better. Yeah, that would be better. And speaking of Ravens, Sheila Woodward 
was listening uh, to us guest Tuesday's strain pun headline, coat the Ravens evermore. And she thought it was going to be yet another tortured literary reference. Drone flew over the Raven's nest. It's not one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Drone oh flew gosh, over the Raven's great. nest. Even, even too tortured for the LA times uh, front page. It turns out. But speaking of which, I believe it is time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. Everybody's favorite feature, especially David's. And today, my friend, we've got a retro pun headline. This is a throwback. December 25th, 1990, Christmas Day, which is probably how it snuck past the New York Times' copy desk. And this comes to us from our friend uh, of the pod and sportsbook editor extraordinaire, Jeff Newman. Uh, The story, David, was that Tim Raines, Tim Raines, he is a baseball player, by the way. Tim Raines was traded to the American League West division. Okay. It was the same division that the great Ricky Henderson played in. Okay, so you got two future Hall of Famers, Tim Raines and Ricky Henderson in the same division. And it was natural in a sports column to ask who was better, Tim Raines or Ricky Henderson. So your challenge is, what was the strained pun headline for a story about whether Ricky Henderson or Tim Raines was the better player? You're not going to get me, you're not going to get me at my best when you're looking for baseball related anything. Um, really don't you just you don't need much here. All right, my own my my first inclination would be like how the West was fun, but I feel like mm-hmm. that's been done a lot of times in baseball. But you got to you got to give me one of the it, great overused headline puns of all time. Yeah, but this way. is just the AL West. It's not the West. I mean, what what is the what is the Whew. Uh, does that have something to do with their positions that I should know about? What is it? Um, I would I would just go right to their names. Just Tim Ricky like Tim, a, Tim, Tim and Ricky Rains versus Ricky Henderson. Um Maybe go to their surname. Reigns, uh, gosh, Reigns and Henderson. And maybe put maybe put Ricky's surname first. Maybe I'm just gonna lead Hender- you along a little bit here. <laughs> Henderson Reigns. Oh my God! What you got to tell me? This is going so badly. Are you Hit- ready? It's a it's a liter- it's a it is a extremely tortured literary reference. Are you ready? Yeah. Henderson or Reigns King. Oh my gosh. Like, a Saul Bellow reference there for you. Henderson or Reigns King? Question mark. That is so bad, but good. But you know, you can get if you can get Saul, Saul Bellow into the headline, you got to go. <laughs> you got to do it. You got to do it. Uh, thanks to Jeff Newman for that one. Henderson or Reigns King? That will be the uh, that will be the bad one to beat for a while. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Uh, Research by Chris Almeida, and our producer is the great Jim Cunningham. We're back Tuesday with more takes about the media. Have a great weekend. See you then, David. See you later, man. David? Let's see where we go. Yeah, here we go is right. David, this one is from the world of communicable diseases. Oh, my. David Shoemaker ate a bag of <laughs> with a knife and fork. Don't mention me by name. Sounds fun. That is so bad. That'd be that'd be great, dude. You're not going to get me. You don't. You're not going to get me at my best when you're looking for related anything. I'm not sure I even understand what that means. Oh God, yes. Like I just want to let you guys know that uh, I had nothing to do with. 
I thought that was an incredibly, incredibly effective uh, use of uh, political theater, uh, political art. And I'm a lifelong fan of... Well, that was it.